You are listening to Genuine Chit Chat. This show is for real. Hello there, guys, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I am joined by Dr. Richard Lettieri. Now, Richard is a forensic neuropsychologist, a psychoanalyst, and recently an author as well. Uh, So we have a nice long conversation on his field of work, so mainly around psychology and that sort of things, but the extreme cases, that links in with the human condition, and then his new book, Decoding Madness, is also spoken about intertwined with all of those things. I will clarify here that there is a slight trigger warning, because there are mentions of some of the cases that he has worked on, and they're quite graphic examples about murders and things like that you know he's dealt with psychopaths and things like that and passion killings and etc so it's generally that sort of thing and we talk about how he got into the field of work some of his influences how his psychoanalytical knowledge affects his everyday life you know all those sorts of things and there's links in the description to his website which is crimepsychologist.com and then also his book that you can find pretty much anywhere that you desire and um yeah so there's not really much else to add here guys so i'm just gonna let it run through but uh if you're joining me for the first time welcome please subscribe share with your friends and etc and i will be back at the end to give a bit more information on what's coming on genuine chit chat over the next few weeks and that sort of thing as well so make sure you stick around and always check the show notes because there's tons of information in there too so um without further ado i give you dr richard lettieri welcome to genuine chit chat where we have honest conversations with interesting people and i'm your host mike burton So, I am here today with Dr. Richard. I should have asked you how to pronounce your surname. Is it Lettieri? Lettieri, that's good. Thank you. Lettieri, you wonderful. Got it. <laughs> got it the first go. That was. Not... <laughs> I should have asked nice, you beforehand. Nice Italian name. <laughs> <laughs> well, my girlfriend is actually Italian, uh, interestingly enough. I mean, it doesn't mean I can speak much at all. <laughs> um, I'm trying to be able to speak with certain uh, members of her family. It's a, yeah, pronunciation is quite a diff- <laughs> difficult one with an <laughs> Italian lingo. Just use your hands a lot, then, to your community. <laughs> it is. Funnily enough, my girlfriend is very uh, much, she's very emotive with her hands as well. <laughs> so whenever she gets animated about something, you can tell, and her whole family does it. It's 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 one of those funny little stereotypes that does, <laughs> in some <laughs> senses, be true. Um, but we are speaking to you today um, because, well, I mean, you've got quite the um, resume, but more recently you've released a book called decoding madness Uh, so instead of me trying to yammer on and explain what it is why don't you tell us what the book is uh, and we'll go from there yeah well i've been uh, a forensic psychologist neuropsychologist for uh, you know over 30 years so i've done uh, a multitude of uh, evaluations for different reasons for the court for the courts i i i'm a uh, expert witness for the uh, superior courts here in California, Southern California. Hmm. And I, I'm usually re, uh, either retained by private attorneys or uh, appointed by the court. Uh, and I'll, I'll have to answer questions like, is this person insane uh, at the time of the crime? In other words, did they, did they not know what they were doing because of a mental disorder? And we can get into that. Like, that's a complicated thing. Well, we're questions about a competency to stand trial, violence, risk assessment for violence. This, what's the risk of this person getting violent again in the future if they've been arrested for violence, domestic violence, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, dr- drug-related problems is the person was violent because they were using meth or is this their personality? And what's the risk for that happening again? Sex crimes, is this person a pedophile? Is the, what happened here? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I have done that. And uh, I, I've always been interested in behavior. Obviously, I'm a psychologist. I'm also trained as a psychoanalyst. So I, I'm, I'm interested in behavior, but much more than behavior, I'm, I'm interested in people and human nature. And, and then uh, what, uh, what drives people to behave the way they do. And there's no uh, more uh, there's not a better venue for uh, looking at the range and extreme of human behavior than in criminal forensic psychology, because you get the opportunity uh, and uh, the burden uh, and opportunity to have to examine people who've, um, who are in a system that's complex, the judicial system, mm. and that have, uh, that have, uh, you know, uh, done some of the worst things that could be done. And, and and it's done sometimes by people who are psychopaths, but it's also by people who are psychotic, who are, who are ill at the time, or it's by people who have have had good lives and then uh, accumulation of stress or for whatever reason have uh, descended into a dark place and acted out in a way that's aberrant for them. So you get the whole range of this. Um, and, and I'm charged to um, examine that and come up with a, uh, an opinion to the court that I have to, uh, has to be comprehensive enough and detailed enough and, uh, you know, empirical and scientific enough to not just say, hey, this is what I think. <laughs> I have to be able to answer those questions and, and defend them in court and uh, on the cross-examination or, um, or by questioning. Um, and it, it so to do this, um, I, I've developed an understanding of human nature that, and, and I thought I'd conceptualize in this book and write about a lot of the cases uh, that are, um, that I've dealt with that I think it, um, expose some of some of uh, uh, the conditions that we all live with internally, our emotional conditions that 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 are reflective of our human nature. Uh, that that under these cases, most of the times things have gone really wrong, but I think it does ex it does reveal something not just about only the defendants, but about all of us. Mm. And I uh, I I use the the term I use it to describe this underlying human nature uh, is the demonic. Now I don't spell it as demon like demons uh, as you know the devils. Mm. I spell it more in the Greek way, de demonic, to a to um, in the, the way Plato used it, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say that human nature is demonic when when uh, it's used in that way. It means that it's a, it's a force for either good or evil. I mean, for, um, Plato described, for example, eroticism as demonic. <laughs> what he meant was not that it's bad, but it's a force in us, an emotional condition that's beyond reason, <laughs> that mm. can really move us in ways that are extreme. Now that could be in the extreme in a positive way in a, in, or in a negative way to be destructive or very constructive. So I see the same dimension of uh, that's uh, of our nature uh, could serve as a as a muse for creativity or high moral judgment, or could be used as a uh, as a gadfly and a very destructive force. And you know, and I see that when uh, that has happened in a lot of the defendants I. I've had to evaluate, um, but it also I can see it come out in more subtle ways in the whole ju judicial system. It's the same issue. It's the same issue. Sometimes the the principle of the, of this system 
are very lofty and I'm, I'm uh, really proud to work within it. And other times it's, it's operationalized and put into practice by people and, and we're all imperfect. And mm. I can see how it's sometimes the, the system works in destructive ways. Um, so we can get into that too. So, but, so that's the whole basis of the book, looking at all these issues uh, through ve- various case studies. And I begin the first few chapters by describing this in a little more detail about human nature, but all, and also about human development. So I set the sort of context for understanding some of the cases that are coming uh, up. So I describe, uh, and I, I use, I try to do it in a very u- user-friendly way. Uh, and I use cases from my private practice uh, of psychoanalytic patients and my forensic patients to describe human development uh, and how, and basically some of the early experience that we need to have in order to be able to sustain a sense of identity and a sense of self-control. And when, when you have these early experiences that are bad or you have biologically predisposed vulnerabilities, either one or especially when those two go together, <laughs> that you have mm-hmm. a deprived and abused or a, um, uh, some, uh, for whatever reason, inadequate early environment to help you, to help you grow emotionally or you have certain temperamental, uh, psychological, biological, psychobiological vulnerabilities, those, those, those can set you up for problems over the long haul. And I, and in the case studies, I go into detail in people's lives and this, and some of their emotional problems. Well, I mean, as I said, you had quite the resume and like what better person to write a book about, you know, delving into the depths of human nature, the extreme ends of it. And, you know, several sort of bullet points I made were things I was going to speak with you about and raise, you know, about um, demonic, you know, and that's that's a very interesting term, obviously, and the way you spell it, as you say, is the Greek spelling of it. But it's the it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it where. Well, with with demonic in or demonic specifically, are you saying, you know, it's not you're saying obviously it's not a bad thing, it's not a good thing, but are you saying that with people who are psychopaths and people that have committed crimes that are horrendous atrocities or that we deem as horrendous atrocities, are you saying that they are more demonic or is that a trait that comes with most of them like how does that fit in specifically with the individuals you deal with? Yeah, I would say with somebody the way look at it, I someone who let's see this is an extreme case that mm-hmm. someone who's a psychopath uh, for example in my book in one of the chapters i think it's chapter six um the title of is a heart of darkness mm-hmm. uh and it's a it's um about it's fundamentally about this one man i interviewed who in a rage killed his wife but then to cover it up he killed his child Right. Uh, the child was never found if the, bo- the body of the woman was found. Mm. But this, the, now this man, to, I mean, he, you wrap your mind around that for a while. Mm. I mean, that's, that's pretty extreme. And he was very, uh, he was very glib with me when I talked about it. He, he denied it almost to the end until he had to come to a cop of plea. Um, but, uh, the, and the, you know, the lawyer, when I told the lawyer after interviewing him for a few sessions, I said, you know, this guy's a psychopath. The psychopath, by the way, is 
uh, I should define that psychopath is someone with no moral conscience, no scruples, someone who doesn't feel guilt, remorse, or, or empathy for anybody. He's very instrumental, self-serving, and could be very cruel and, uh, uh, and he uses people for his own, for his or her own purposes. Most psychopaths tend to be males. Mm. Um, and he was, uh, and, and that, you know, psychopathy is like every characteristic kind of spectrum. This guy was on the extreme end of it. <laughs> mm. uh, and he was on the extreme end of the dark side of the demonic. Now, when I talk about demonic, the demonic can also be a creative. When look, you probably are more of the creative type. I mean, you're doing this podcast, so you have a certain uh, intensity. I would, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's that's part of a, a more of a creative side of your demon, demonic nature. So I, or what I'm talking about, it's it's the intensity. It's something that's beyond rationality. It's that it's really drives us to and what defines us, us soulfully of who we are. Uh, so to be demonic, uh, I'm, I'm saying that's part of all of us. But sometimes it can go go to the dark the dark end of it is where like this guy Randall this patient I evaluated where where he was uh, came from an early or, you know I interviewed with his family for example and all this they, they, they right from the early get go he was kind of a bully with kids um, you know his father his father you know there could be some biological uh, element to this his father was uh, you know had a criminal history he wasn't raised with his father didn't even know him his mother had him when he was younger. So he, um, uh, and then she remarried when he was about 10 and she took off with her husband. He, he was raised predominantly by his uncles and grandmother and they, the grandmother especially doted on him. But the uncle told me, this is over some sessions, you know, she, you know, he, he really never, um, you know, we, we all loved him and the uncle still loved him uh, and said, but he, you know, he, he just, he would lie as a kid for no reason. We didn't even know why he bully kids. He, he, he would be manipulative. And then as he grew up, he lived, uh, he didn't live in California. He, I mean, he lived in California, but he was raised in another part of the country where, and he was a salesman. So he traveled a lot and he'd come back to this state that he lived in, but he would be inattentive to his grandmother and they, the uncle would be annoyed with that and say, you know, he, she raised him, loved him so much. And now she has a bit dementia. He doesn't pay any attention. He doesn't even forget she has dementia. There was no bonding. There. Mm. Um, and the young, a uncle said to me, you know, I, I, he's a grifter and I love him and I'm on his side. That's the way the uncle described him. Um, so, um, so he, he's, he, that, that's a psychopath. Now, now all people who, who, are, who do these acts, these criminal acts aren't psychopaths. And most of them in my book are not psychopaths. They're, they're, mm-hmm. This happened for all kinds of reasons. Um, for example, um, you know, another man that I interviewed who actually uh, strangled his wife to death, he was in his 60s. Uh, and he, it, again, it's a complicated case, mm. but he, uh, he was taking care of her for years. She was a raging alcoholic. And even, the, even his kids wouldn't go over the house anymore. And they told him, why don't you separate from him? Uh, and he said he could do it for religious reasons, for his, he felt they had a, a bond together uh, and he, he made a commitment to her. But, you know, he uh, over a course of about a long period of time when he didn't get any sleep because she would drink and be drunk all, uh, uh, all night 
keep him up, then she'd sleep all day. He couldn't sleep during the day. So he who's had no sleep mm. uh, for, for a few weeks and put up with her. And just before this happened, he, she was in a car accident because she took the car and she was drunk and he had to get her, he got her to the hospital and she spit in his face. The, I mean, it was like a, a whole scene. This is in the, the family's telling me this too, his kids. Mm. So what, uh, the night it happened, he just really uh, snapped and you know strangled her. He couldn't believe he did it. Uh, and then was going to kill himself and his daughter talked him down for it. So the, the attorney uh, thought it was, might be uh, insanity. Like he was out of his mind when he did it, but I, I couldn't get there to be, uh, I, 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 we can talk about insanity in California, the standard. He didn't meet the standard for, uh, for insanity, in my opinion. But he, but he wasn't at all like this other man I told you about, the psychopath. This had no criminal history. Uh, was actually devoted to his wife. But he, he, he kind of eroded to the point of this rage came out that he likely had and was suppressing for years and killed us. So he, he was convicted of a voluntary manslaughter. Hmm. I don't know if that's a, uh, if you, you, you know what that means. So, yeah. yeah in, in the UK. Yeah. We have, we have manslaughter. It's, it's killing someone, but not intentional, not necessarily intentionally doing it, but you are negligent. What your actions cause someone's death, but you yeah, don't well, necessarily this, this, specifically. This, that, yeah. That would be involved. This is more serious. This is voluntary. I didn't say he didn't, he did it. He, he he did it and he yeah, yeah. Uh, and i said he did it voluntarily but he did it in a in a state of passion it was a crime of passion it right. was an explosive moment there was no premeditation there was no intent early on intent to do it but when it once it happened um you know he he was just he was in a, a passionate rage um mm. but he was someone who was a uh, you know and the, you know the the family gave me some of the diaries he had written over the years and about a year before this he, he wrote her a poem mm. <laughs> about how he would never leave her and at the end of the poem this i titled i titled uh the the uh, the, the chapter on this based on this what i found in his diary which uh, the last poem the last line of this poem was I love uh, uh, until I will stay with you. And then last line was till death do us part. Mm. <laughs> I read that to him uh, and, I, and he looked at me and said, I, I know. I said, I, I, it, it was just so ironic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he killed the only way you can separate from her is to kill her. Mm. So, but that's somebody who's, who's uh, th that kind of demonic element, that kind of potential. <laughs> Mm. potential in every anybody really uh under the wrong conditions could happen and it came out with him but he's not psychopath uh he, he's not even he wasn't even psychotic he was in a a, a rage that he he uh, lost control of himself but uh that's why he got that's that's why i couldn't uh give the opinion that he was insane at the time if he would uh, to be insane, he would have had to be psychotic and to think his wife has got paranoid and think his wife is some kind of, you know, a British agent who's come to come, you know? <laughs> or CIA agent, you know, really delusion or something like that, or hearing voices that she's going to come and kill him. Uh, that's, that would be different, but he wasn't, that wasn't the case with him. Mm, wow. I mean, yeah, that, that's a very good explanation of sort of demonic and the differences in some of the individuals that you handle. And it must be something I've thought about before is when individuals such as yourself, you have such a unique view into 
the human nature like obviously that's kind of the theme of what you've uh, been discussing thus far but people like myself who you know i mean i work in insurance so the worst i see is like horrible car crashes or things like that but like excluding even things that are not even you know seeing a car crash is not quite the same as having to look at case files and information and speaking with someone who has committed such heinous acts and there's such a small portion of the population that not only see this sort of thing or hear about this sort of thing in depth but also you're on maybe not exactly the front front line you know go actually so do you go to did you go to crime scenes and things being part of the forensic uh element of this like and please no, speak to us about what the the job of forensic neuropsychologist actually yeah. is compared yeah. to what a psychoanalyst is please yeah yeah i know i usually don't go to the scene uh mm. i mean i might uh i've have occasionally but usually what i do is review the crime scenes and mm. go through all the, and, and listen to especially in cases like this murder cases mm. uh, I, I i look at all the crime scene photographs and i i listen to the audio tapes because the police are usually recording it all even mm. in the scene at the scene and if they're interviewing anybody at the scene and i read the, and i read the reports and read the transcripts uh, mm-hmm. and all the audios that they take of, of all the people they interview and even talking to themselves even the 911 calls i mean i've listened to such horrendous 911 calls there was a 911 call where literally the mother was pleading for help as this psychotic son was coming in and, and killed her uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, listen to all that, but I, I'm not, uh, I do have some, uh, more empathy for first responders who go into the scene, mm. uh, and have to witness this directly or, or witness the bodies. I mean, that's, that is traumatic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's traumatic for me at times. It's takes time. That's to what I was going to ask about. Yeah. Yeah. To, to just watch, to just listen to the videos and, or, or, you know, or, or look, I have to look at the crime scenes, uh, mm. photos. It's horrendous, but the advantage I have over, um, first responders and emotionally is that I get to, and this may sound, this is ironic, but I'll, I'll explain. Mm. I get to spend time with the defendant, the person who did it now, mm one might say well that makes it even harder but it but it, it in a weird way it humanizes the person because mm. uh, i see that uh, you know save except for cases like with randall you know i i mean i, I i've interviewed a lot of psychopathic defendants but most of the people who i deal with are not mm. uh they've done these horrendous things, but uh, I get an opportunity to really understand who they are. And sometimes it's ugly, but but I do get an understanding of it. Mm. <laughs> so it makes it more, uh, it leaves me, I think, less vulnerable to being jaded mm. and cynical. <laughs> I think what also helps, and this is, I, I can only speak personally, but I, I, I well, it's more than personally, because I also observed other people, but uh, by being a psychoanalyst, and which implies a, uh, an understanding of human development that accepts the dark side of it, that accepts mm. the uh, natural aggression and the natural potential for some of that to go wrong. <laughs> mm. uh, and and having to have been in analysis for seven years myself to face myself as a person <laughs> and mm. in the range of my own feelings, it's it makes it more palatable to understand another person's dark side. If see if you're repressed, uh, I'll use that word, or if you're too phobic about looking at your own darker 
impulses, you're going to have trouble doing the kind of work I do. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be willing to know yourself more in that, in that regard, be able to not know yourself, but to be able to accept yourself uh, mm. uh, and accept that, that, you know, that, that you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, that you, that we're all really not that much different. <laughs> we're all very different, but really fundamentally not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, thoughts can come into one's head that could be considered, you know, heinous, but the, the thought of something like that is not the same as, say, doing it. As and that's, doing it. That right. is a, and that's one thing that people like with, uh, when people talk about either meditation or things like that, it's not about stopping these horrible thoughts. It's about accepting them, you know, thinking, letting yourself have them come through. And with psychoanalysts, that's like, you know, putting those kind of thoughts under a in a sense, a microscope and trying oh, to figure right. out exactly right. what, why you're thinking that, you know, just accepting the fact that humans do think horrible things and some humans do horrible things. And by just trying not to think about them, isn't a way to be able to understand them and help society progress, understanding them and why people do these things and potentially try and, you know, prevent it in some ways, you know, it's, it's a very interesting perspective uh, onto those elements you know that that's very true in fact i mean even uh, cognitive behavior therapists um do you know what you know what they are you know they're, they're more deal with symptoms on the mm -hmm. on this, uh, deal with uh, uh how, how thoughts affect behavior but they've come mm -hmm. around to understanding the research shows this you can't you can't just suppress a thought mm -hmm. and think it's going to go away <laughs> in fact by trying to suppress the thoughts it strengthens them <laughs> Uh, you have to sort of be able to tolerate them, work those through. And that's meditation or you have to be able to watch and say, there it is, you know, what's that about? Or if you don't want to look at what's bad, at least say, there it is. It's just a thought. I'm not going to, I'm not going to die from it. I don't have to kill anybody because I have this bad feeling. Evolutionary psychologist too. Well, what's his name? I have his name in my book. I forget. I reviewed some of his work. In, in one of the later chapters, but he did a study where so um, uh, this isn't you know not, this isn't a clinician. This is a, a, a evolutionary biologist, a, a mm. psychologist, a scientist. There's something like ninety percent of people have had serious thoughts about killing people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. the idea of uh, uh, the, the, oh, the name, the title of the book he wrote was I think the murderer next door, because he said you know uh, uh, the the, the Potential to murder someone is hardwired in us, and he gives mm -hmm. that from an evolutionary point of view. Uh, and he, you know, talks about this as being um, and, and and doing these. This is a kind of an international survey, thousands of people. So it wasn't just going around asking anyone, but something ninety percent of people had, uh, you know, serious thoughts about they'd like to kill somebody. Is that David Buss? David Bust, yeah, that's his name. Sorry, right. yeah, Are you familiar I, with that? <laughs> I just, I just looked it up. Uh, well, I was obviously listening to you, but yeah, I had to look that up because I was like, that sounds very interesting, and I thought I'd mention yeah. it for people who want to look it up because a lot of my listeners like to do that sort of thing. Uh, but sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. So he is, he makes that point, and he, and you know that that it's hardwired, and and, and he, but then he, I think he's wrong in some of his statistics on it. And I want to point, point this out because I, I mm -hmm. looked at the literature. He said that. Uh, you know, uh, something like most murders are committed by people who commit premeditated or premeditated. That's not true. Uh, mm. There are some that are, of, of course, like there's premeditated murders, they're criminals, mm -hmm. <laughs> psychopaths, there's people who, who do do that. But most most murders are committed are more, um, you know, like my patient, I just told you more as a, and crimes of passion. Mm. Um, and, and there's, the, the, you know, that I, I look, that's some literature on that. So, 
but his point that people have these thoughts very uh, that that's that I think is uh, is on on target. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people also feel if they have those thoughts that there's something wrong with them that they're crazy. I, you know, in my private practice over the years, I've had I've run into that frequently. People are afraid to even admit that they have some of these thoughts. They think that they'll be seen as crazy and they feel crazy even having them. So they'll suppress them. Uh, mm. um, so it's um, in, in that, uh, that could be similar to the man who killed his wife. Cause when I looked through his diaries, you know, there was a, um, even though he was in his mid sixties when he did this and they, they were married for years and years, he had this Pollyannish view, sort of like he'd love, you know, love you forever. That's not that that's Pollyannish, but facing the reality of who she was and how he was feeling after years mm-hmm. of being mistreated and, uh, and, and really devalued by it. I think he um, didn't face that. Uh, there was a suppression Pollyannishness that could come back to haunt you mm-hmm. <laughs> that did him and her. Yeah. It's one of those things that I've heard as well with, you know, this is once again, this is just anecdotal evidence from my part, but it's like, you're more likely to be killed by someone that you know, than, you know, someone premeditate and murder and choose you and come and find you and kill you is more likely to be a crime of passion in general, because I mean, what, do you have any comments on that? Once again, that's anecdotal things I've heard. Yeah, that's definitely true. You mo- mo- you know, you, you know, this in the crime shows that you on TV, <laughs> they always look at their spouse first or somebody... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, I love the BB, BB, uh, the British broadcasting system. They're, they're, um, they're, or, or the British crime shows are great <laughs> compared to New York, compared to American ones. I mean, you have to watch some. They're so complicated and, uh, <laughs> and so much more uh, humane in a, in a way. I mean, the, the characters are flawed. <laughs> they're, <alcoholics. laughs> they're angry. They have their own domestic problems. <laughs> there is a massive uh, people who are outside of the UK in a lot of ways may not know that. Yeah, especially sort of late daytime television. There's just like five or six different series of crime stuff that is just it's been in british culture for decades and it's just it's quite a big percentage I, I of programming know. Now, I, I, well, you know, we just uh, my wife and i just uh, um, and our neighbors you know just the, discovered them like in the last few years and we're all talking about them watching you know in, uh, in america you got these shows uh like um uh, i don't know are you familiar with any um, um, csi ncis yes or, or ones like blue bloods very uh mm. You know, I'm from New York, so I, I mean, I know about the New York cops. I mean, I, and I, I, I you know, I, I have friends who have been um, in on the force, but it's so Pollyannish, it's so one-dimensional <laughs> compared to the British ones. I mean, you can't watch it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> We've ruined it for you. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, I, I have to go back and watch uh, some of the old, the the groundbreaking. Um, New York shows like uh, NYPD Blue. I don't know if you've met mm. years ago. Uh, yeah, I'm aware of that show. Yeah, yeah, or even uh, Hill Street Blues. I mean, these things were groundbreaking in the '80s. I remember watching. I was in graduate school. Well, wow, this is good. Yeah, they'd show some, you know, a woman's naked ass for a second. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't do that and say, "Hey, this is great." <laughs> <laughs> But even the themes were great. I mean, the characters are, uh, you know, that, that cheating, you know, I mean, not on their wives, on their wives, but they also make mistakes on their, they'll, they'll, they'll hide evidence and then they feel remorseful about it. Just, and this, that, that didn't just didn't happen in these shows years ago. But even even now, compared to the British shows, the, the, the CSI stuff is like 
Uh, yeah, lightweight. You can't watch it after watching some of your your nation shows. Yeah, I, th- I think ours focuses a lot on. I, don't, I think it depends on on what who makes it and things because some some shows do focus a lot more on say the method and are very like trying to be as realistic as possible. And then you've got other things which are just so purely character focused that the plot may potentially suffer because of that. So it's there are a lot of like different reasons. I'd say, but it's interesting hearing from someone who, you know, knows the field so well and watching the, you know, the TV version of it. Like, as I said, I was going to ask, like, that must be quite frustrating. Be, obviously, seeing seeing them do it in a certain way and be thinking, that's wrong. And you watch like a movie and then yeah. things, and you're like, that isn't how I would depict it in that sort of way. Well, what I always love is when I see the expert witness, you know, testifying and they're always mm. self certain and, and, and haughty. You know? <laughs> and I think, you know, that's, that ain't right. They, they, you know, you go up there and you, you're being, uh, you have this uh, uh, really uh, intensive cross examination. It's, it's kind of could, it could get withering, <laughs> mm. you know, but they're all up there and they're so articulate and, um, and, and self-assured first of all that's not really good to, to do for the jury you want to be you want to be just more natural mm. uh, you, you you if you act arrogant up there the jury doesn't like that so yeah that's sort of what i focus when i say hey i don't know any experts like that <laughs> <laughs> well maybe i do know a few but uh, they don't do so well it's not <laughs> not good to be arrogant up there <laughs> yeah yeah because it, it's it's also that's a part of the you know, your multifaceted job that I didn't necessarily consider until now, which is, you know, not only do you have to look at extreme cases of individual human nature and try and deconstruct it and work it out, but also then you have to convey this to humans that are considered, you know, in air quotes, normal, sort of different, you know, different grouped humans. You have to then explain to one group of them why another one is, you know, clinically different in a sense yeah. like how what what terminology do you use for that sort of thing like if yeah. you're talking about someone who maybe well how, how would you describe those sort of scenarios yeah i i try to do it as naturally as possible i mean that mm. you, you know i'm i'm asked questions and in and in the in, in the court here in america we use the dsm diagnosis you do too i think mm. uh, so I, you know, we'll have to use those terms, but then I'll have to explain it. And, and, uh, it depends too on the lawyer who, who I'm going through this with. So, you know, we'll have to explain psychosis. What is a psychosis? So I'll, I'll explain what this person was having delusion is. What is a delusion? They uh, define a delusion. And then I'll explain how that delusion was being, was operative in, in, uh, with this person at the time. So, mm-hmm. uh, Okay, maybe I can give an example. Um, this yeah. one of the cases I have is the in the case uh, in in my book. Um, it's Michael who, killed, who stabbed his mother in the back. I mean, it was just horrible. Um, but this this kid, I mean, he's a young man. He's not so young anymore. But he uh, he had a long history of of schizophrenia, hmm. uh, and he would have these this. Uh, paranoid beliefs about people and he ha- and he had this long-term uh delusion that the sun was coming closer to the earth and was going to burn him up and send him to hell because it burn up the earth and sent him to hell uh and oh and this was documented see this mm-hmm. is what was helpful uh it was documented because he's been he had been multiple hospitalized multiple times so 
uh, he, and he developed this delusion, believing that his psychiatrist, psychi- first he thought his psychiatrist was 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 behind this, hmm. he was going to a county mental health, and the psychiatrist uh, gave him medication that caused burning sensations. It was a side effect, uh, hmm. the medication, and he had to be taken off it. But that convinced Michael that the psychiatrist was the one who was bringing the sun closer to the earth and wanted to send him to hell. Right. So he was going to kill the psychiatrist. Uh, he felt that that's the only way to save him and the world. Well, about a week before he decided to do that, the psychiatrist moved to a different clinic. Right. So he got a new psychiatrist and who actually took him off the medication, put him on another one. And he wasn't getting that burning sensation anymore, but he still, perceived the sun coming lower and lower and he, he and he wasn't um he wasn't hiding this he calls relatives and tell them and they'll say don't worry about it that's not true take your medication you know mm-hmm. that kind of thing uh and the, you know tell the psychiatrist psychiatrist up his medication but it wasn't going away and then something his mother did that he he inferred meant she was actually the one doing it mm-hmm. that usually happens and when you're that ill um, the, the people who frequently get targeted uh, uh, and become the and be, become the focus of your delusions are the people closest to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and his mother is the one who is taking care of him and has done and had done so since he got sick, which was in his uh, uh, college years. Mm-hmm. So she became the, the target of his delusion, uh, and it was getting worse and worse. And the, the night before. He called one of his siblings and said, you know, mom is doing this to me. And, and he said that the, the sibling said, what are you talking about? Mommy's a saint. Look what she does for you. What are you talking about? Get that out of your head. And he got off the phone and uh, the brother did uh, and uh, called his mom because he felt a little, he, he, I, I think he um, picked up the intensity of, mm. of his brother's conviction. Mm. <laughs> So he called his mother and said, you know, uh, you are right. Michael, you think I'm just a little worried about it. And she said, uh, he would never hurt me. And and that's then the brother called him back. He said, just remember, mom's a saint. Mm-hmm. And that was the last time he talked to his brother before. And the next morning, the mother came out and she's walking to the kitchen, probably get a first cup of coffee and t- talking to him as the day, what they were going to do that day. And by then he had purchased an, uh, a knife and had it under his uh shirt and, and as she was walking to the kitchen he ran to her and stabbed her in the back killed her uh and then realized that nothing changed in terms of the sun yeah <laughs> said, oh my god this, this i've seen this before too after an act uh someone who's psychotic they they realize n- nothing's changed if they think this person is going to do something to them or is, is affecting something in the environment then they act with it you know, i've seen this in hospitals where it's a, you know an, a patient attacks another patient and because he had this crazy thought and then you realize what i still have this thought and nothing's changed and whatever he's whatever he believed and then he realized that what he did was you know, wrong. So this is what happened with Michael after he killed his mother. He said, Oh my God, nothing. The sun's still coming down. What did I do? And he called this, he called in another sibling and they called the cops and he was just waiting for the cops. So now 
this was somebody who met the standard for insanity. I mean, the standard is being, uh, it's a kind of a two-pronged um, standard in, in the United States here. First, you have to have a mental disease or defect, a mental disorder. He's got schizophrenia. Mm. And, and it has to be operative at the time. And because of that, uh, because of that acute psychosis, the person didn't, didn't know what they were doing was wrong. Mm. So, uh, morally or legally. So he, he, he thought that if he killed his mother, he was going to save himself in the world. Yeah. So, you know, so that, that meets the standard. Um, and, and the, and the jury found him insane. The it's, it's, it's very difficult though, to get to meet that standard. And it, with Michael, his, his delusions were very uh, clear for everyone to see as we talked about it in the courtroom. And it was documented for a yeah, number of years. Mm. It's harder when uh, this is getting back to your point before, how do you communicate this to the jury? Mm. It's harder to do that, not to communicate the, the extent of the symptoms, but for the jury to, to buy into it. If there's not a long history of mental illness, because mm. then they wonder, is the person faking it, uh, exaggerating? Uh, it's, hard, it's harder to, um, to get the point across. And, and, and in order to do that, I do a lot of psychological testing. And part of that is to, it's to uh, make sure the person isn't faking. It's to rule out exaggerating symptoms. You know, there's a very ingenious psychological test to do that. Mm. Uh, in in, in uh, uh, together with the interview and looking at the consistency of what he's telling me and the totality of everything I see from the, you know, looking at the documents, reading the interviews, reading his interview right at the time of the crime, looking at all, all this fact pattern uh, from all the reports, is everything consistent? And then doing psychological testing, make sure he's not exaggerating the symptoms hmm. Uh uh, and over-reporting them, saying he's ill when he's not. There's, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of ways to test this empirically and come to a conclusion. So, I, you know, I always do that. Even with Michael, I did that uh, mm. because someone could be psychotic, have a long psychotic illness, but at the time when they did it, they were not. I've, mm. I've got a case like that in, in my book too someone who was very psychotic, but I came to the conclusion, you know, I couldn't say he was insane when he, when he killed his brother. <laughs> mm. So, so it's, uh, you know, complicated in each case is different. Uh, but in this case with Michael, he was found insane. Uh, and I think it made it a bit easier because he, um, you know, because he had a, a there was a paper trail <laughs> for mm. years of him having, him being uh, having uh, psychosis and also having this delusion. <laughs> yeah, and out of interest with that sort of line, do do you believe that there are some people who either were born or have just become, for lack of a better word, broken and can't be in air quotes repaired? If you know what I'm saying, like, is there someone who is who becomes ill and you can't make them well again? Do you come across those kinds of uh, people very often? Or can you even make that call? Is that um, uh, too much? Well, if I you come across, and if you if you're going to come across someone like that, that that's mm. that who's that ill, that you, you that it's going to happen. There's a greater chance of coming across them in this system, mm -hmm. uh, in the in, you know in the judicial system. So I I have interviewed uh, several people over the years. Most most even um, 
psychotic people with severe schizophrenia could get better and could get yeah. stabilized. But there are a couple of people who have fixed, fixed and horrendous delusions mm. that are um, that need then now to say they can never get better. I, I couldn't say that, mm. but that need really long term care. Mm -hmm. um, um, and including medication and uh, and a psychotherapeutic process, because some of some of these um, individuals never really get they get they get a me mental health treatment for the severe mental ill is terrible. Mm. It's totally inadequate in in, in states um, over here as well in many ways. Uh, it's uh, you know, and it's it's degraded since the Reagan era is when is it Reagan era when uh, funds were. Lesson reduced because the, the one people out of the state hospital and they said they're going to you know do community treatment to make it more humane, humane because the state hospitals were bad. Well, the state hospitals were bad, but they didn't replace it with anything better. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, there's you know, research too on this that people with with severe schizophrenia. They just don't need medications and be seen every three weeks on medication. The medication could dull the symptoms, but um, but then they'll stop the medication. They need someone to always be in a relationship with them to monitor it, uh, and, but uh, and and to un help them understand when they're uh, in a, in a relationship of trust, so that they when they see themselves faltering, they can call or they can see you. You can preempt problems, uh, but some. Uh, some of the individuals I've seen in the jail over, over the years are extremely ill um, and need, uh, and they're, uh, they're really better off in a, in a forensic hospital than being on the street. They'll get, they'll get, they'll get more, at least consistent treatment <laughs> mm. than they could have uh, on the outside because of the cost. I mean, they'll, people with schizophrenia get treatment, they get medication, they get treatment in like the county facilities, a county outpatient treatment, but you, you know, see a psychiatrist, you see them and then you come back in six weeks or two months if they're stable. Well, uh, they stop the medication. They, they don't stay stable. They, they don't really, the symptoms, the medications help with the severe symptoms, but they don't help with the, um, what, what's called the negative symptoms. In other words, symptoms that, uh, behaviors that should be there that aren't the flat aspect, the difficulty in interpersonal relationships, that helps with the positive symptoms, positive, I don't mean the good symptoms, the symptoms mm -hmm. that, uh, that are uh, expressive, you know, like hallucinations, delusions, but then they're left feeling empty inside. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. left, they're left feeling, can have no emotions, they can't interpersonal relate. They need a lot of, and that takes years to do, that takes years of work, to work with someone to improve that or to get someone stable. And in fact, a, a schizophrenics are, they're at high risk to kill themselves. Hmm. I think there's a higher rate or a close to a higher rate of uh, suicides and schizophrenia than even with depression because, um, and, and they usually do it in a, on an impulse. And when they're a little better, because they, if someone has a long history of this and their lives is so compromised, when they're in a state of a bit of clarity, they see the emptiness of their life. Hmm. There are risks to kill themselves. So, mm -hmm. so there are people with so, severe. And I, you know, I see them. Um, I, I, I've seen a number of them. And you know, one of the units that I go on at the jail here, 
um, usually the one that to, to evaluate somebody's competency to stand trial. Uh, that's that's an easier evaluation to do because it's more functional. It's like, do they know? Do they know what they did was uh, did that that caused them to get arrested? Could they talk to their attorney? Do they trust their attorney? It's you know, it's more functional. Mm-hmm. But sometimes these some of these in, inmates are so extremely ill, uh, the the deputies can't take them out of the jail, take them out of their cell, and they're on they're on the medical unit, and I have to go on this unit because the de- they won't come out or the deputies won't take them out to the judge rights in order to go in, go to their cell because the judge can't send them to the hospital and find they're incompetent unless they get reports from two experts saying that they're ill. Mm. So, and, and because they're so ill, they're refusing meds and they have right to do that and, until they go through this process, until the judge says, no, you will force medication. You can't say that until they go through a certain process and that can mm. take months. So I'll go on this unit and it's like going back to the 1950s. I mean, people in their, in their cells, screaming, yelling, saying they're, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're, they invented the internet. Why the fuck are they in here banging the door, screaming? They're, they're nude, they're masturbating in, the, uh, in, in their cell. So you can imagine the interview is very short. <laughs> I go in there, this is, you know, they're, they're out of their mind, literally. Mm. Um, and I don't go in the cell. They open a little slot for me and the, the, you know, the deputies wouldn't let me go in the cell, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just, um, horrendous. And I mean, they're, the cell is a total mess. They, they have a toilet in there. They may be washing themselves in the toilet and there's feces in the toilet. There's food. And And when it gets really bad, the deputies have to put on their hazmat suits and get them out and clean up this place. So that's how bad some of these. They're so regressed until they get treatment and get medication. Um, but you 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 really don't see that in private hospitals and, uh, anymore. You, but here, you you, you more tend to see see that at times, like on this unit, because these patients come in. They're usually extremely sick when they come in. That's why they got arrested. And then they're refusing meds, and be, be, before the process gets to where the, they write an order for two experts, two experts to get in, then they have to get another yeah, another hearing before they can get them this, to force them to take medication. So it, it's, um, uh, it gets to be uh, some process, but you, you do see people who are extremely ill mentally. Mm, I can imagine it's, yeah, it's, it's, you interact with individuals that most of us don't interact with unless it's, a, it's like a one-off instance. Yeah. Whereas for you, it's the, the standard, for well just you know it's it's your job and it's part of the, the passion that drives you and things is finding out about human nature and i want to ask how that impacts you interacting with uh people who are not you know uh under investigation who, who aren't potentially ill who haven't committed you know uh, a crime of some sort in that regard like when you should interact with friends or family or other to lack of a better word no offense meant but normal people yeah. in a sense have, do you find that your job positively or negatively affects how you interact with these individuals or has it changed your perception of people? Because obviously you said about looking inward, which I assume would have a huge impression at looking then outward and your interactions with other people. Yeah. Um, I, I would say generally um, working uh, in, in this field and uh, experience, especially in the you know, criminal forensics, has mm-hmm 
probably made me um, more humble mm. <laughs> in a way, to it, and so accepting of people, mm. and uh, and more and more attuned uh, to, to the, again the range of of uh, possibilities and who we are. Uh, again, mm. I, I almost see people as not that different, even mm. even, uh, but and and very different. I mean, for example, I, I have. Um, you know, when I do long-term psychoanalytic work, um, mm. people come multiple times a week, and uh, in, 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 I'm st- sort of st- uh, stopping some of this at this point in my career because I, I just want more time to do writing, more time to consolidate what I've been doing over these years. So, mm. but uh, it's always it strikes me how uh, even uh, you know the, the p- patients I see in outpatient are generally people with, you know, depression, anxiety, but high functioning people, uh, mm. you know, you don't go into psychoanalytic treatment, um, you know, for, if you're psychotic, I mean, I have, I do see psychotic people in the outpatient mm. I have over time, uh, over the years, but, uh, I do a different kind of treatment that I, I certainly, my psychoanalytic understanding of people helps, but I don't do the same thing. You have to be more active. You have to be more supportive, more directive, but with psychoanalytic treatment, you're, you're more, uh, it's you're taking more time in exploring someone's inner life more. You know, if someone's in crisis, you don't do that. <laughs> you know, if someone uh, is uh, needs more direction, more more active help. It's uh, it's a different story. But um, what I specialize more in my practice were in more long term treatment. But even with uh, all, all uh, people in uh, that that are functioning well, they, there's there's still this this in in uh, extreme emotions that could be experienced. It's it's the capacity to manage it a little better, so <laughs> it mm. doesn't spill out. But the in, internal experience, the, the degree of rage, the tendency to be spiteful and and rageful, comes out in more, uh, in in more uh, less overtly or less completely destructive ways. Mm. But and that that's where uh, I I talk. Uh, a lot about in the book of, of mm-hmm. some early development that makes a big difference. And I focused on this capacity for mentalization. Uh, are you familiar with that? Because you're from England and really some of the most work on this has been done in England. At the, <laughs> you know, I went to um, college, which over there for you guys, I think it's just like late high school and I do have an A-level in psychology. Um, yeah. Is So I, I know bits and pieces. I know certain studies with Freud and Milgram and a variation of those sort of things. But How about if, mentalization? If, Peter Fonagy, does that ring a bell? He's at um, um, I've heard college. Me- I've heard mentalization. What was the second word again? Peter Fonagy. He's, uh, he's one of the leading uh, analysts who's done a lot of research on this. It, you know, he, he, he took off on some of the work done on, on attachment mm. and developed uh, along. This, is, this has been in the, in the air, in the psychology and f- philosophical air for years. But mm. mentalization is the ability for, to understand uh, that you basically your own thoughts, feelings, emotions, intentions, and to understand that you have a unique mind and someone else has their own unique intentions mm. and it stems from a, capa- uh, a, ca- a capacity that derives out of basically having a good enough early uh, secure attachment so somebody mm. your caretaker was able to understand you as an infant and toddler so you then as you develop 
your own independent mind, you're able to understand your own mind because someone mm. helped you do that. <laughs> so, you know, it's like if you're an infant and you're crying, you're uh, you're not. It's it, that, that emotion at that point is is a biological. It's not mm. a psychological event. Uh, it's a biological. It's unpleasure, and you're screaming. So the so mom or dad has to figure out what's. What's he crying about? Oh, let's feed him. He's still crying. Oh no, his 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 butt is wet. We got to change. You know, you you the the parents serve that function mm-hmm. until the uh, infant is able to start developing symbolic language to understand, uh, which comes with language. And, you know, mm-hmm. after one to two years of life, so they start developing a mind and the, the mind they can understand their own internal experience if it was mirrored adequately by others mm. around them and they weren't abused they were neglected so if you want if you have that kind of attachment you and that someone's been empathic to you and responsive to you you then are more capable of doing that not to yourself and to others mm. do you see what i mean is that yeah yeah and it's i think i, I do remember learning about something around that when it was I think it's around the developmental stages because I remember there just being so many approaches. I think it was like 72 studies over two years. And I think a, a lot of it was in the sort of the developmental periods of, you know, a child's life. And I think I know that you cite um, Freud in your book. And obviously he is for anyone who everyone who any, knows anything about psychology should know the name Sigmund yeah. Freud. He's quite yeah. like he, he's like yeah. one of the, the leading fathers of modern psychology and things. And obviously he developed the idea of the id, the ego, the superego. But a lot of what he focused on was children and developing and growing in those critical stages in one's life especially when young to turn you into who you are today in a vast array of ways you know both in behavior ways but also he speaks about uh sexuality and things as well so there's like a wide scope of things he right. tackled right. in that right. in that way yeah and he's yeah you know, that my idea of the demonic is mm-hmm. in freudian terms he talks about the id uh you yes know, the id, yeah. so it would be something similar but he, he was just more specific in talking biologically, but this mm-hmm. is, has to do a lot with a oh, close to even Anna Freud, his, mm-hmm. uh, his daughter, but mostly it derives out of the attachment research mm-hmm. that was done both in England and in the United States, especially in, uh, in the eighties and seventies and at UC Berkeley. But, um, so when you have this ability to mentalize that, uh, and it's not, it's not, um, how can I describe it? It's it's an, uh, to, to un- it sounds so simple, but to understand your own thoughts, feelings, emotion that someone else has their own mind, mm. like self awareness and understanding that another yeah. person has that same self awareness. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's not just self awareness in the sense that subjective awareness. It's it's mm-hmm. even, it's deeper than that. It it's uh, an awareness of yourself over time, so mm-hmm. you can space travel, for example. So let's say you're an adult. You're, you may have an impulse to behave a certain way because you're influenced by your environment, but you're able to sort of reflect as a space in your own mind so you mm-hmm. can reflect on who you are, your values, your, uh, that you've been uh, internalized over time. So you could take the time to re- uh, before you react and, mm-hmm. and you can react with a certain degree of integrity based on who you are, based on a life's experience, not just like a buffer. Yeah, it's a it's it's a buffer, and it's uh, um, it's a, uh, a gi- gives you that space that mm-hmm. uh, to to think. So it so it really helps with self regulation and with perception. I mean, I give an example in one in the in my 
uh, book when I was trying to uh, explain this um, again in, in ways that that one can understand, not technical ways. Mm-hmm. I have one patient, a private practice patient, who, who um, you know, she's a scientist, but when she was young, her mother dropped dead in front of her. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, she didn't even remember what, how she finally got to a neighbor, but, you know, the father came, the, the neighbor came, the mother died, they grieved. The father was a good man. He ended up remarrying the mother. Is her new her mother was uh, stepmother was very supportive. She did well uh, externally. I mean, she's a scientist. Uh, she worked hard, but she has uh, she's in th- came to therapy because of this irrational feeling of loss. And even mm. even even after she breaks up with someone, <laughs> I have an example of this. Here. But the point, and she, so you know, this is something she had to struggle. But she realized this was her problem. Mm. This wasn't her boyfriend's problem. <laughs> she wasn't projecting this on anyone. She couldn't understand it. She knows a figure that must have something to do with what happened, but she doesn't see how, because rationally she knows that the loss of a mother is different from every time she has a loss, she, it's devastating to her. Mm. So, and, and I give that as an example, someone who has a, men- a capacity for mentalization, as opposed to another kid I evaluated that uh, he ended up, punching somebody in the face, another teenager in the face in a mall. Uh, and man, then kind of examining this with him, uh, he, he didn't feel, he felt the uh, other, this, the victim that looked at him, he explored mm. that when he looked at you, what he thought was this, he looked down at him. <laughs> he was mm. mocking him. Now, why does he feel that? Well, he's, this kid was uh, the, the, the defendant, the, the kid who did the, uh, the assault um he was but he was at a school for learning disabled kids he was bust in from a, a more impoverished area he had a history of of uh, total neglect during his infancy he was he was in different forced placements so he had learning disabilities but be, behavior problems and he's done this before and talked to school psychologists uh, you know he, he he misreads people hmm. because he projects onto them his own ugly feelings about himself. He just sees the guy looking at him. He thinks that guy's fucking with me. Mm. You know, so there's like no separation, no, there's no space between his own mind and that of, and, and what he thinks is in someone else's mind uh, because of Mm. that early disruption. Uh, It's a, it's such a simple thing if you have it, (laughs) but if you don't, it's, it could be devastating. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes with, you know the ground of introspection in a lot of ways and obviously you've mentioned that with yourself but like i myself uh when my my dad passed away when i was 19 so that was eight years ago Mm. and from that happening and i've I've spoken about very openly on the podcast i've done whole podcasts about it and things and it's just it's something i'm very open about because i the way i describe it is it's the worst thing that ever happened to me but it's the best thing that ever happened to my character because from that event it made me look at what made my dad my dad and is you know he had a lot of positive uh, elements to his personality but also had a lot of negatives he's yeah. never abusive or anything it's just he could be a bit of a dick sometimes yeah. so it's like examine those elements of him and examine and recognize when i do those kinds of things and try and take a step back and be like okay why was i doing this why was it when dad was doing it he was doing it and then why am i now doing it like the refusal to accept when i'm wrong for example you know which i've now and make an effort if I am wrong to specifically make an effort and to say it and things, whereas dad would never do that and never apologize. Yeah. And it's those sort of small things, which one 
as as one grows as an individual you have to kind of look at yourself and look at your uh, potential faults and try and see how you can rectify them. But to know that, you have to kind of think, well, why was I acting this way? What's making me feel like I can't say that I'm wrong? And in that sort of realm, that's in a micro way, kind of what yourself are doing in the industry that you are. And the reason that I can look at myself and understand those elements is because of the industry you come from has explored heavily the human mind looking into itself in those sort of senses. Yes. Yes. And that, and that your, your willingness and, and ability to do that is, is important. I mean, that's an important um, psychological aspect of maturity. And mm-hmm. it's not just something you can just, um, you can just talk to somebody about and tell them they got to do it more. <laughs> it's a whole process that of uh, a, a psychotherapeutic process to get to that because it's mm-hmm. uh, because it's a, tra- if someone hasn't gotten that it's trauma, it's a traumatic uh, it, it's, it's a, it, it exposes a traumatic developmental history. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, like the way you can even kind of get a sense of that with somebody is, you know, part of um, what research do it in, in a very empirical way, but you can do that just listening to people. When you talk to them about, you know, like you mentioned your dad, mm. you mentioned your dad and, uh, but you, you, you didn't present a, um, one-dimensional caricatured view of him you said you know he was a, he was he wasn't perfect sometimes he could be a dick but he, he was a good man that whatever you said mm-hmm. so you, you get this this is a real person you're talking about <laughs> you yeah. know like the the uh that adolescent who punched the kid he, he, he you know he just he just would think everybody's a dick that mm-hmm. if he didn't like them is very very black and white <laughs> yeah uh, there was no uh nuance there was no ability to really uh, would I like to refer to radical empathy? I mean, it's kind of easy to empathize with someone you're close to, or someone you identify with, or people you identify with. But can you can you can you empathize? Can you understand? Uh, you know, stretch yourself to understand someone who's very different from you, <laughs> mm. and be able to listen and say, I, I can see from based on this where they come from because of this a b c d e i can see that although for myself that's uh that's beyond the pale but mm. being able to do that is uh takes a certain capacity it's not something you can just it's not a, it's not just a skill <laughs> it's mm. capacity yeah and it's something one has to always work on even with myself like i want to clarify to any listeners it wasn't you know my dad passed away and then a week later i snapped my fingers and i'm how oh, i am yeah. now like no, <laughs> it that's, was a long that's process a, it's right that's a process right. years of dealing with it and looking back and it was you know as you get a certain distance away from for me it was from that event you know i was acting certain ways and i wasn't dealing with things in the way that i should have done and then after years I then look back and go, oh, why was that happening? And then over time, I've kind of realized the, where some of the behaviors lie. And it's, yeah, I want to clarify to people, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't just yeah, wake well, up one day yeah, and suddenly oh, know. It, it, yeah, it doesn't sound, it sounds like it's been, you know, a, a, a process of work for you and, and, um, yeah. and self, you know, self-scrutiny. Part of the reason why I did the podcast, yeah, to be able to yeah. talk to other individuals yeah. and, you know, be a better conversationalist because I, <laughs> I can talk yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done a good job. Yeah, I mean, this has been absolutely delightful. I really appreciate you speaking with um with us. And so, just to, to clarify, I want to ask a, a couple of small things before we finish up here. Um, your audiobook that's coming out. Did you read that, or is someone else reading it for you? I, I um I know someone an actor did it. Uh, mm. I did the prologue. I just oh. read the prologue. Thank God it was. A, I, went, I didn't want to punish everybody with me. <laughs> it took me like an hour. Yeah, you know, I was so you know you had to go in the studio and then say I was. 
I, I don't know. I was just so uncomfortable doing it. And I re- mm. kept reminding myself, look, I'm just reading the three pages I wrote. <laughs> What's making this so hard? <laughs> reading it. And the, yeah, the, the producer that told me read, doing, reading a, uh, a, a book is, uh, is a, you know, it takes an, it's an art. <laughs> it mm. takes, uh, you know, it takes some skill and time to be able, be able to do it. And I saw that. i mean what people can do is obviously after listening to this they can do one of two things um because in a week in a few weeks of this being released i'll make sure including the show notes that the audiobook will be available so people can either check out the audiobook or they can pick up your book you know either physically or digitally and hear you it like because of this conversation they'll hear your voice and they can hear you reading out like that so it's like a a double whammy um so is there i hope so (laughs) I mean, it's been delightful. Like, um, it's been incredibly informative uh, discussion, and I've loved speaking with you. Um, as I'll include links in the description to Decoding Madness, as well as your website and things. Is there, you know, what are your sort of final words? Anything else you want to either direct people to or tell people? Anything you haven't yet said? The the floor is yours, sir. Uh, no, I've I've kind of we talked a lot, so I appreciate you giving me giving me the time. And yeah, just go if they uh, have any questions, they can just go to my website. Um, and uh, and I'll be I'll be glad to respond. Wonderful. Well, yeah. Well, thank you once again, Richard, for uh, coming on. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you. I'll make sure all the details are in the uh, description and okay. whatnot as well. Well, thank you, Mike, and I enjoyed talking to you. It was a good <laughs> chat. It was genuine chit chat. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, I will stop the recording here then. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks as always for tuning in, guys. Make sure you check out Richard's website. As I said, crimepsychologist.com. It is in the description. And also make sure you check out his book wherever you pick up books. It is really, really enjoyable. As I said, when I was speaking to him, I have read parts of it and things. So I would recommend people who are interested by this podcast to pick it up as there's a lot of cool stuff in there. But my friends, what is coming up on Genuine Chit Chat and what sort of other stuff have I been involved with? So what's coming up? I'm going to be speaking with Jamie of the Talking Dad podcast. I was on his show a few weeks ago. I think the episode aired and we decided to do a little swap. So I went on his show and he's coming on my show. So I'm recording that with him tomorrow, I believe. Uh, I've then got a podcast due next week as well on, I think, Wednesday with Jesse McKinnell. He came on a couple of weeks ago. We spoke about his latest book, Dead Cats, as well as a few other bits and pieces. So make sure you check that episode out if you haven't already i think we're going to just talk about stuff like the end of the world things like possible theories and predictions about the end of the world so that'll be quite a fun different podcast as we kind of get towards the end of 2021 and then i've also got plans for ben of star wars timeline to come on the podcast i've been on his show four times now uh, so it's pretty good timing for him to come on my show he's got a very interesting history and animation and he's russian and he now lives in the states so we're going to talk about those sort of things and then we will eventually talk about star wars because that's one thing both him and I are very very passionate about so if you haven't already checked out my appearances on Star Wars Timeline they're on YouTube but I have included the links in the description as I always say you know check out the description there's loads of stuff in there both things I mention and other stuff that I don't even mention uh, in addition to that make sure you check out the last episode of Genuine Chit Chat which was all about the Star Wars anime anthology series called Visions but anyone who subscribes to Comics in Motion will have found that episode there as well um, I think that's all the episodes I've got due for the rest of this year I, I can't remember if I think I might have another one somewhere hidden but I need to check my 
calendar and i'm not doing that here because that would be being prepared and um but obviously in the description there's all the other guest spots i've been doing recently on the hall of mirrors podcast uh on beard Arts productions podcast and then also the last comics emotion book club which was about art spiegelman's mouse so check those out too check out my other show styles comics and canon uh on my youtube feed um you if you're listening to it on youtube hello welcome thank you please subscribe and if you're not go over to youtube i've included a link in the description uh because all of my episodes of genuine chit chat get uploaded to there some of them also have videos too and then also my episodes of styles comics and canon are on there and then all of my episodes of both genuine chit chat and styles comics and canon are in their own little playlists so there's like a star wars playlist all about darth vader then there's also a genuine chit chat playlist all about you know like re- religion and spirituality uh, so any kind of themes that you want to follow through in any of my podcasts that is the best place to find them and really, aside from that, guys, I'll just say that you can check out my Patreon, patreon.com slash genuinechitschat. For as little as £1 a month, you get access to hours and hours of additional content every month. I release at least one episode of Afterthoughts every week, and me and Megan go on road trips, and we record a bit of audio from our road trips as well, and they're normally slightly longer episodes too. They're normally near a half an hour long. And um, me and Megan just got back from a trip to Scotland. It's the second trip to Scotland that we actually have been on this month, which has been quite a busy month. And uh, the first trip, we recorded two Afterthoughts for that. One just talking about random nonsense and one we spoke about star wars the last jedi so that's a lot of fun we did not record one on the drive back but i am planning on recording another episode here at the homestead uh, as well when we talk about scotland and things so if you want to hear not only movie reviews that are spoiler free if they're new ones or non-spoiler free if they're older ones tv series reviews and also a general insight into mine and megan's both our relationship and also our life as well because when we go on road trips we always record little afterthoughts here and there uh, if you want all of that sort of stuff and support the show early access to things and all that sort of jazz, please consider checking out patreon.com slash genuine chit chat for loads of additional content and more other cool stuff but um that's gonna be it for me guys thank you so much for listening as always i appreciate each and every one of you listening especially all the way to the end please make sure you share this on social media rate on good pods and apple podcasts and Podmatch and anywhere else that you are listening share with your friends uh scream genuine chit chat from the rooftops like a mad person and uh yeah i just want you to know i appreciate you all so um i'll be talking to you guys next week likely with a conversation with jamie of the talking dad podcast and uh, yeah thanks for listening and i'll talk to you then you have just experienced host creator everything else of genuine chit chat and also the host and creator of star wars comics and canon found on the comics in motion podcast mike burton